In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the internationally acclaimed OGGN HSE podcast heard in over 100 countries. If you appreciate this podcast, then thank and support today's show sponsor, Hexagon, and the folks from their Asset Lifecycle Intelligence Division. Hexagon delivers software solutions that prevent, detect, and remediate cyber threats, reduce process safety risk, and optimize profitability, enable trusted data for decision-making, and even digitize your supply chain. This is industry-leading asset management software to extend asset life cycles and improve productivity built upon more than 30 years of experience and continuous innovation. Their goal is to help you maximize your return on technological investments, so Hexagon's global support team offers ongoing product upgrades and technology support 24-7, 365 days a year. Also, they provide superior instructor-led and virtual training services to help you get up to speed with your new solutions. Visit the Resource Center at hexagonppm.com to explore solution brochures, case studies, product sheets, videos, white papers, and more. And, of course, we'll post this web address in the show notes. Make better, more strategic decisions to extend asset life that increases safety and improves profitability with Hexagon. Today, my guest is Matt. Is it Macu, Matt? Is that how you pronounce your last name? It's Maco, Russell. It's from the French, although we did not come through Louisiana, like you might be familiar with other O's on people's last names, but it is Maco. Maco. Okay. So, well, a couple things. I should have known that because the O-U-X, that's always like Thibodeau, and I get a Boudreaux and Thibodeau joke every day from a restaurant in Houma, Louisiana. You know, that's, in fact, that's the name of the restaurant, Boudreaux and Thibodeau. In fact, the one for today was that Boudreaux had won the lottery and he had won $8 million. And so he went to collect his $8 million and, you know, the lottery guy said, you know, we don't give you this money all at one time. We pay you, you know, $400,000 a year for the next 20 years. Boudreaux said he wasn't going to wait no 20 years for his money. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted fair and square and he wanted it all right now. And the clerk said, I'm sorry, but that's not the way it works. He said, well, then if you can't give me all my money today, here's your ticket. Give me back my dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. So you didn't come through Louisiana, you know, according to the famous French chef, he's now deceased and comedian Justice Wilson. He said all the good pilots when they left Louisiana and came to the United States. The good pilots took everybody in through on the Louisiana coast. The bad pilots took them in over on the Texas coast. So at Port Archer and Orange Beaumont, did you come from there? No, my ancestors came through Ellis Island. And it's, Oh, wow. Yeah. Back in the 1800s, they were fleeing the end of the French Revolution. And it was interesting, like a lot of other immigrant families with strange last names like mine, it got abbreviated as they were immigrating in. And so the spelling actually ended with O rather than A-U-X. 
And it was when my parents went to get married, they looked through the records and they found that, you know, they found the original ancestors that had come over and the customs official had shortened it to O. And so my parents, <laughs> when they got married, my dad changed his name. My mom changed her name as part of the marriage. And so the last names have started back up. So there's not many of us Macos here in the United States because I think a lot of them are still using the Are original- still using the O, huh? Yeah. Many of them settled in Wisconsin. Many of them are still in Wisconsin. So that's where my dad's family is is from. Okay. Well, and so where are you right now? I'm in Denver or just outside of Denver, Colorado. I work out of my home office, a city called Westminster. It's a suburb about halfway between Denver and Boulder, if you're familiar with Boulder, Colorado. I work out of my home office or out of airplanes and hotels when I'm out there talking okay. to customers <laughs> and whatnot. You know. Okay. And in fact, I actually failed to, I got so off into Boudreau and Thibodeau and and all that. Matt, you are the chief technology officer for Hewlett Packard Enterprises. Is that right? I am a field chief technology officer. I'm not the chief technology officer at HPE. We field CTOs are an interesting blend of customer facing and product facing. So we sort of blend the world between what products thinking up, what our customers need, and a lot of back and forth negotiation about how we should be influencing our products, what we should be building for the next generation. And then out there on the forefront, talking to clients and customers about, hey, this is what's coming. Here's how it can solve your problem. So it's think of us as this kind of that broker between what the needs of the market are and what our product folks are building. And I'm part of our cloud services group. So, you know, you may be familiar with Hewlett Packard Enterprise as, you know, the provider of the absolute best backend infrastructure in the world, whether it's compute servers, storage servers, networking, high performance But we also have a cloud option and a cloud capability. Everybody's talking cloud these days, Russell. And so I represent our cloud services group where we take all that amazing infrastructure, wrap it in a bunch of modern software and provide that same cloud experience that customers expect, but perhaps where they can't get that cloud experience. So I can't go to a particular cloud provider because my data is out in an oil field or my data is stuck in a data center. My data is et cetera, et cetera. That's where HBE comes into play. We bring the cloud to you. Okay. So you see, when I think of Hewlett Packard, I'm talking to you and we're recording this right now over my Hewlett Packard laptop. I guess most people, when they think of Hewlett Packard, they don't associate it with the oil and gas industry, but you've got quite a footprint in the oil and gas industry through this technology you're talking about, right? Yeah, we sure do. And just to note that Hewlett Packard split up a few years ago. The company essentially broke up between sort of front of office and back of office. And the front of office are the laptop you're on, the printers that you're familiar with, the copiers, all those front of office services. The back of office is the company I work for. So it's all the stuff you don't see, again, in the data center, the servers, the networking, all of that complexity that makes the front of office work. And of course, we're partners with Hewlett Packard, but we're Hewlett Packard Enterprise, if that's not confusing enough. They couldn't pick a different name for the company. I guess there's still a lot of <laughs> still a lot of prominence around the Hewlett Packard name. Sure. A lot of respect. So and we are pretty big in the oil and gas segment because at the end of the day, as organizations are out there trying to solve problems, whether it's finding resources in the earth, whether it's figuring out how to map those, whether it's processing about the best drill plans, capturing that data along the way, running intelligence, and then all of the back office systems that these oil and gas, as well as other resource organizations are running. 
whether it's for their billing systems or their drilling systems, all of that is running on Hewlett Packard Enterprise gear, whether that infrastructure is out in the field with the ladies and gentlemen out there doing the work out on a rig, whether it's in a drone, in a truck, or in their back office, HPE is the technology that ties all of that together using, again, modern technologies, hardware, and software. Interesting. Okay, well, the reason, Matt, and actually the way I met you, OGGN, which of course is the producer of this podcast and about a dozen others, OGGN actually helped put together and sponsor at the last API Houston general meeting at Petroleum Club earlier this month on September the 13th. By the way, anytime I get the opportunity, I have to, you know, take a little second out and do a, you know, shameless advertising for API Houston since I am the past chairman for API Houston. But, and even though we are listened to in over a hundred countries. Our biggest listenership, of course, is in Texas and especially in the Houston area. I want to encourage people to help support API Houston. We've contributed almost $2.9 million in scholarships for petroleum engineering students at six major universities, and we're trying to go over the $3 million mark. So we're looking for sponsorships and help on that. Our golf tournament's coming up next month. Our tennis tournament's coming up next month. We have five, you know, fun events. Uh, Sporting clays will be coming up soon. So check it out at api-houston.org. But OGGN put together this little panel of experts at the meeting, and you were one of the featured people, also had somebody from NOV. But the subject was talking about technology in a couple of different ways, and one that I particularly want to emphasize As you just pointed out, technology now, you know, it's at the heart of everything. Oil and gas operations are trying to learn how to optimize that. And that's one aspect. But something that you really pointed out in an interesting way, but in an important way, all this technology, if you don't have buy-in from humans, then your projects aren't going to deliver on their promises, are they? That's right. And I see this is where, well, it's the proverbial rubber meeting the road. And what we tend to see is a lot of organizations struggle with optimizing their business because of where the technology interacts with the humans. And there's so many different examples of this, Russell, that where organizations have put brilliant technologists, brilliant people that understand data, that understand the business problem, and they figure out the best way to optimize a problem. And the humans just don't go along with it. And there's lots of reasons for it. It's too different. It's scary. It's change. It actually is going to clash with existing processes or the way people are used to doing things. And so, you know, the adoption of new technology, this tale is as old as time. When new technology comes along, I remember reading about this when I was taking history classes. There's a group of people called the Luddites. You know, I think it was like the loam that would, you know, make fabric. And there was an automated version of that, maybe powered by a mill or something. And the people that used to do it by hand revolted. And they had this, they smashed the equipment and they were Luddites because it was different. They were worried it was going to take their jobs away. You know, fast forward hundreds of years and here we are. We see technology largely being a tool for automating things that are repetitive. That's what AI and a lot of technology is really, really good at. It's automating repetitive mundane tasks 
But the problem is there's people, there's humans doing those mundane tasks and they feel that that's important. And so rolling out new technology is always a challenge because of that resistance you get. People think, am I going to lose my job if this technology comes in? And the answer is almost always exclusively no. It's we want to use your understanding of the business. Instead of doing the repetitive mundane things, we want you to use your intelligence and understanding of how this works to make things better. So you're probably going to be doing something a little different going forward. But again, that's scary and that's challenging, Russell. So it's something that has to be slowly implemented. You have to bring those people into the fold when you're talking about that new technology. And you've got to weigh in and balance this across what can be done in the short term and then what can be done in the long term. And it's not just oil and gas. It's not just deploying new technology to the field. It's across every industry from low tech to high tech and everything in between. During the API meeting, which was absolutely fantastic, by the way, my co-presenters, especially talking with Robert from NOV, it was just, I was so great hearing from someone like him and him specifically who's out there running teams on the rigs, encountering real world problems. And not only on the panel, but before and after, we were just brainstorming around how, well, what if we could optimize this? And what if we could do that? And how would this come in? He goes, well, Matt, it doesn't work that way. Oh, I didn't know that. What about this? And that's where, the again, the rubber meets the road. And I talked about this example in Formula One. This is such a cool story that one of the Formula One teams, I won't name any names just because it's not a shame, but it's, I don't want to call anyone out. But I suspect the story's similar on a lot of these teams. So one of these teams brought in a team of data people, data engineers, data scientists, to try and see if they could optimize a race, how the race cars would go across the track. And they're already optimizing lots of stuff. They have... I think they're pretty famous. And this is not just true for Formula One. It's NASCAR. It's IndyCar. They capture so much data every race. And they run that through sophisticated simulations. A what if? What if we ran this tire? What if we ran that tire? What if we did two pit stops instead of three? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're taking all these variables into account. The wind, the temperature, the weight of the fuel, all of those things into account. And then they say, well, what if? What if we could optimize even further? Now, these cars are still driven by humans. And the humans, well, they do all the driving. There's only so much that technology can do due to the regulations on these races. And so they said, well, what if we were to optimize the braking pressure on each of the four wheels for each of the turns on the track? And so it would change every race because many of these, every track is different, whether it's length or number of turns, geography, et cetera. What if... We ran billions of simulations and figured out that if you applied, pushed this button at this point in the race and did that a hundred different times during a race, we could guarantee you shaving a couple of seconds off a lap, which again, in these high performance races, a couple of seconds a lap is winning and losing. And so they brought it to this world renowned record holding driver and said, hey, we can shave off a couple of seconds per race. And he said, great. What do I have to do? Well, in addition to everything you're already doing, you've got to learn 100 new button presses per race and then change that up every single race. And he said, well, that sounds great. But here's the thing. I've got a thousand horsepower inches from my back. I'm breaking so hard that tears come out of my eyes because there's so much negative G-forces. I've got other cars coming by me. I'm driving 200 miles an hour at times. Try not to run into anything. And I've got to optimize all that. And I've got to drive the race. So I don't think so. And they said, well, what can we do? And they ended up negotiating 20 unique button presses, basically one per turn rather than 100. That was what they negotiated. But 
that's the human aspect, Russell. That's the business process of the human driving the race car. They were only able to do so much because of all of those other factors, but they were able to negotiate that. And I suspect over time, it'll become more and more involved. But that's just one example of how this moves forward. And I think it's a fun one because I think a lot of people understand racing and all that. And you know, it's bleeding at technology. We know these race car teams throw hundreds of millions of dollars in R&D at this every year. And at the end of the day, you have your business process. You've got a human behind the wheel that is unpredictable and oftentimes is the difference, though, between optimization and not optimization or winning and losing. So I thought that was a fun story to share. I wanted to spend a little more time on that here today. Yeah, I wanted you to share because I was impressed by that story. And that was the reason I wanted to talk to you on this podcast, because when you drill down to safety, which is, of course, the core of this podcast and everyone coming home safe, you have your standards and I just saw there was a webinar that was live this morning from a company that said, hey, we're going to show you how to take technology and, you know, put it into your safety program and that sort of thing. So you have standards and you have technology in your safety program. But the thing that really determines whether or not you have a successful safety program is the human performance aspect. And if you can't the farther those two things are from one another, the more ineffective your safety program is going to be. And you have to factor in the human performance aspect along with the technology. And I think that's what you're talking about here. And that's what this story illustrates. Somehow or another, you got to be able to marry these two together, right? Yep, that's right. And you've got to, again, compromise around how the people are going to interact with the technology, and especially as it relates to safety. So, you know, something that's so core and so intrinsic to what the folks in the field are doing, trying to radically change the way they are used to doing things, even if it doesn't, they don't think it's going to, you know, replace their job. It's a different way of doing things. And when you have people that are experts in what they do, coming to them and saying, hey, there's a new way to do things. It's going to make things better. Well, you got to sell them on it. And the best way to sell them on it is to engage them early in the process, get them involved in the process, get some buy-in in the process and meet them halfway again. When they say, well, no, that's not quite how we do it. We're used to doing it like this. You got to understand, well, if they don't do it like that, what does that mean? Well, maybe that means it takes them a little further away from their usually taking their breaks. Well, they're not going to want to do that because, you know, that's important that they get rest because, again, that's part of safety again. So there's all of these things that we who sit in corporate offices and deal with technology and have brilliant ideas all day long that don't understand about how things actually work out there in the world. And so spending time with the people that are going to interact with this and, again, having them at every step along the process to validate, vet, push back is so important so that when it comes time to, hey, we got a new safety measure that we think is going to help reduce accidents because it's going to be doing X and Y. We put these little sensors in your harnesses and this is going to tell us when that harness is maybe rubbing a little too much and we might have a failure. It, don't worry, it's not going to get in your way. It's not tracking your movement, and but it's what it's doing is, et cetera, et cetera, Russell. And, and so again, getting the buy-in, getting an engagement from those teams is so important because then word of mouth will spread. People say, hey, you know what? This saved a guy from his buckle snapping and we avoided an accident. And you know how important that is. A, we got to work more hours. We didn't have to shut down the site. And most importantly, someone didn't get injured as part of this. 
So that prevention of injury or being able to respond better if there is injury to minimize how that you know is going to affect that person or the site, that's so important. And this is where modern analytic technology, you hear the term AI and machine learning. Right, and those things. exactly. All that means, Russell, is we're taking a ton of data. We are taking tons and tons of data of all different shapes and sizes. David, you wouldn't even have thought you needed to capture bringing that together and then looking back in the past. And this is where we build, it's called a model. It's, hey, all the time someone's gotten injured out in the field, what were the three or four factors that were present every single time? Was it the weather? Was it the age of the equipment? Was it the specific drill equipment? Was it the kit? What was it? And when you look at all of that historical data, these clever data scientists can almost always pull a couple of variables out, a couple of things, like I mentioned, that show up time and time again and say, well, can we now predict if we know that those same variables are the ones that generally cause health and safety issues? What if we were to try and predict if that was going to happen in the future? And then if so, what can we change about that? What variable? Well, we can't change the weather. Can we train the crew a little better? Can we replace equipment a little bit before it wears out, even outside the maintenance window? Or can we do those things to try and reduce health and safety? And we see this use case over and over and over again across industries, across company sizes, across human interactions. The key is you need lots of data. You need lots of data and you need a lot of historical data. The more data you have, the better. But it's not, you know, sometimes we start from square zero and we got to start collecting today. And sometimes that data is handwritten notes, or maybe we can get these guys to record voice memos because with voice memos, we can get a, very, a much more accurate representation than trying to transcribe handwriting. So again, there's lots of tricks we can do to capture really good data and then build that model as we move forward. But that's hard for a lot of organizations, especially out in the field where maybe we don't have a lot of data connectivity or maybe we're running on really old systems that, you know, the SCADA systems reliably get that data across, but it's low bandwidth and it's delayed and it's not all the data we need. But maybe we just incorporate that as part of it and bring new technologies to bear to capture new things. Like I said, maybe we put ruggedized tablets in the field or, you know, those ruggedized notebooks in the fields that work with guys wearing gloves and allow us to capture some of that information in real time. Maybe they take pictures of things rather than try to describe a part. And we send that picture back for analysis and let the, again, let the machines do the analysis. Hey, is this gear shaft, is it rubbing a little raw over here? Is it getting worn down? Well, you know, take a picture, send it back, do the analysis, you know, get a response back quickly. Yeah, it is. We need to stop. You know, examples like that, Russell, where we can start incorporating technology today and we'll continue to see dividends paid down the road. Did that make sense? Yeah. In fact, what you just said, that was exactly where I wanted to segue into because, of course, going back to the behavior and human performance aspect, you've got a human that you have to sell on all this new technology and they're sitting there looking at it as a, you know, extra cost, extra expense in their budget. And what they have to be made to understand is you just used the word dividend, you know, but this data that we're going to, all this new technology that we're going to bring to bear, it's going to actually it's going to save you money and time. It's going to reduce incidents. It's going to reduce lost hours. 
insurance cost, everything that goes along with a, you know, of an incident, you know, especially if, if it's a serious one, these things can be great assets to an effective safety program. And that's, I wanted to have someone on like you who understands all that to kind of highlight that for this podcast. People have heard me tell this story before about the MBA students talking about effective PowerPoint presentations, and they got into an argument about hmm. how many points a PowerPoint slide should have. You know, and one guy said, "No, nah, it should be only three, and another said, "No, nah, five. You should have." And somebody said, "No, nah, you can have." Them. Finally, they called a professor. Said, "How many points should a good PowerPoint slide have?" And he said, "At least one." <laughs> and and if you sit through some PowerPoint presentations like I have, you can really appreciate that story. And our goal on this podcast is, you know, for you to come away with at least one. And if it's more than one, that's even better. But when you listen to this, you come away with at least one thing. You say, hey, this was a good point. This was something that I learned a lot from. Matt, I think we've learned a lot from you today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. We'll have you on again sometime. Awesome, Russell. Well, this is fun. I love telling stories. I love talking about real world problems and where technology intersects real world problems. Again, whether it's trying to save an organization money, trying to make a money, which is what a lot of it is, or more importantly, protecting humans, right? Protecting people and figuring out the best way. It's the best thing. So thanks again for having me on, Russell. Well, and thanks again for helping us with that. Thanks again, everyone, as always, for listening. Tune in again next week for another episode of Oil & Gas HSE, production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or on whatever podcast platform you use, like us on LinkedIn and use all your social networking to tell your friends about us. And we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.